Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Exceptionally well-preserved fossils of Colombian mammoths and other Ice Age animals are found at the Waco Mammoth National Monument in Waco, Texas. In this unit of the National Park System, you can see the only recorded evidence of a nursery herd of Colombian mammoth mothers and their offspring and get a rare glimpse into the behavior and the ecology of these immense extinct giants. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. This week, the traveler's Lynn Riddick travels to Waco to see what else she can unearth about this unique unit of the National Park System that permanently protects the remains of Colombian mammoths. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Along the Brazos River, 100 miles south of Dallas, lies Waco, Texas, town with a metro area population of about 277,000 people. Waco is the home of Baylor University, Chip and Joanna Gaines and their home fixer-upper empire, and the town also sits near the Branch Davidian compound, where a deadly siege occurred in 1992 between federal agents David Koresh and his followers. There are museums here too, the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and the Texas Rangers Hall of Fame and the Dr. Pepper Museum, so misunderstood. And then there's the Waco Mammoth National Monument where you'll find the nation's only recorded evidence of a nursery herd of Ice Age Columbian mammoths. Colombian mammoths once roamed much of North America and were the last in the line of mammoth species before extinction more than 10,000 years ago. Waco Mammoth National Monument is one of only eight sites in the country where you can view the fossil remains of mammoths as they were originally discovered in the bone bed. It's a beautiful day in Waco, Texas. It's about 60 degrees, a January day, blue skies. I've traveled to Waco Mammoth today to speak with the site's lead park ranger, Bryson Turnbull. Hi there. Hi, Bryson. Welcome to The Traveler. I'm so excited to be here with you. Well, I'm happy to be here, too. So um, without further ado, let's take a walk and maybe point out some features on the way to the uh, dig site. Sure. Let's head on down to the dig shelter. This is a, a live oak tree. Live oaks are very common down here in Texas. They would have been around uh, during the mammoth's time. And this one's uh, over 150 years old and it's just so beautiful. And it's probably one of the first things that you kind of see as you're walking down the paved trail uh, to get to the dig shelter. And you may have noticed as we were coming down, a tour had stopped. Um, we kind of like to stop and talk about what 
I'll say life was like back then, but the, what the fauna was like at that time, and it's very, fairly similar, uh, maybe a little bit different, uh, but it's just breathtaking and a great picture point for our guests to uh, now, stop and see. Now, this tree was not here 10,000-plus years ago. No. But you say live oaks were probably part of the landscape then? Mm-hmm. Yep, so a lot of the plants that you see were here at that time. There are some that were not. Um, and, of course, then you're getting, you'll be getting into mega flora, megafauna as well. So just like the animals were big in the Ice Age, a lot of the plants were large as well, and we don't really have those anymore. Uh, so this is the trailhead um, into our nature trails, and this was uh, the map. So we don't have an extensive trail work system, but we do have a decent one. And it helps you kind of step away from the kind of urban parts of the park to just kind of get into some Texas nature, but then also kind of imagine what it might have been like when all of those big plants and animals were here. Uh, if you can use your imagination a little bit, you can just kind of imagine what it would be like walking just down that way and then all of a sudden here comes a herd of mammoths crossing your trail. How big is this park site right here? The actual national park itself is only about five acres and that uh, is just around the dig shelter. As far as the overall site goes, we're a very unique park in that we are a partnership park. So our park is managed by the National Park Service, the City of Waco, Baylor University, and then uh, the Waco Mammoth Foundation. So that's kind of like our fundraising arm. And so most of our operations, so tours and things like that, are done by the City of Waco. Uh, we do education and outreach, uh, community outreach and things like that. And we all work together, which really... Um, provides us some unique opportunities to do some really cool stuff uh, that some parks can't do. And we've got that many more heads working together to really kind of think some stuff up and, and come up with some neat programming ideas. Great. Well, let's keep going. Yeah. You know, when we were standing there looking at the human femur and mammoth femur, it just brings it home. And so I always find that that is a very wise uh, use of our funds uh, because they last and this is our amphitheater here, and in the Texas summer, for those who aren't aware, it gets pretty warm. Uh, I'm originally from Illinois, so <laughs> it gets really warm in my opinion. But this allows us a nice shaded place to sit outside, uh, give programs, chat with people. Um, we do special events, so for like National Fossil Day and things like that, we'll bring out the big replicas. We've got like a tusks and femurs and saber cats and of course, you know, um, Smilodon, the one with the big banana fangs. Everybody loves that one. So we uh, have the nice outdoor area to do some programming, which is nice uh, before you go to the dig shelter, which of course is air conditioned, which is also pretty nice uh, in the Texas heat as well. So I noticed we're passing through a gate. Uh, yes. It's open now. Mm -hmm. um, do you lock this up at night? Yeah, so the fencing gets locked up every night. Uh, we open it up every morning for tours. And this is where we've stepped onto the actual five acres of the National Monument. Um, that fence kind of delineates that. So the land we were just walking on from the parking lot to this point, mm -hmm. owned by the city of Waco? Yes. Yep, and then it's managed by um, their Parks and Recs department. Um, and so you'll see folks that look kind of like me, but the uniform's a little bit different. Uh, and those are City of Waco Rangers, um, and they do a wonderful job of giving tours and, and helping us manage the operations of the site. Uh, it's very wonderful to have partners that can help us out in that way, and we can work together. Hey. 
So I want to stop here. This is one of our first Wayside exhibits, and we get to see these two guys. And that's Paul Barron and Eddie Bufkin, and they are the two gentlemen who stumbled upon the fossils originally. So in 1978, they're out here in the woods in this little ravine right over here. We'll walk over. And, of course, why they were out there, you kind of get different versions depending on the day of the week that you talk to them. Um, sometimes it's said that they were out um, hunting venomous snakes uh, for the landowner. Uh, some says they were just out looking for arrowheads. Uh, other times they were just being boys out in the woods for whatever reason. They were in this creek bed and they come across a bone sticking out of the bank. And they did something that young boys often don't do and they told somebody about it. And so they came out and they were looking at it. They're like, well, that's, that's not a human bone and that's too big to be a cow bone. So they took it over to Baylor and they took it over to Baylor and they said, oh my goodness, that's a mammoth bone. Where did you find this? So then the paleontologist or the geologist from Baylor came out and they look and they start digging in and they realize, oh, that bone's connected to another one, connected to another one, connected to a bunch of them. And they realize this is a pretty significant find. And through mostly volunteer work, they begin to dig and excavate. And that's when they realized that they had something truly unique on their hands and that it was a nursery herd of Colombian mammoths, the only known or only found nursery herd of Colombian mammoths to date. Meaning it was... Um females and their offspring? Yeah, so a matriarchal herd, uh, and it's going to be all females and their offspring. Once the male mammoths reach maturity, they kick them out. They're a little ornery. They don't like having them around. They don't, um, they don't cooperate so well. Um, and so that's why we find them mostly alone. Uh, and then they're able to have safety in numbers to raise the young. Again, the males leave at a certain point and the females stay. Um, we actually have the skull of what we call Mammoth J, who is believed to be the actual matriarch, the oldest mammoth in the herd. And so she would have all the knowledge. She would know where to go when it was really dry and they needed water. She could find it. Um, where to get to find the best grasses to eat. She would know where to go and have that knowledge and be in charge. So what happened between the discovery and then the founding of this national monument? So a lot of things happened. And the, uh, most of the excavation work led by Baylor was done through volunteer work. So for tens of years, the volunteers just came out here and, and did what they could do. And all of the nursery herd fossils had to be removed from their location because uh, the creek bed, although dry right now, is an active waterway even to this day. So they had to be removed for their safety. Um, the bones that you're going to see in situ, meaning sitting right where they were found, in the dig shelter, they were stumbled upon as the cleanup of that process. But since they weren't in an active waterway, they could be left where they are. So as part of the partnership, Baylor stores all of the original nursery herd fossils that we have at the Mayborn Museum, which is their, their museum there, and they have proper storage and, and uh, temperature, climate control, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of the fossils are still jacketed, which is the way that you, uh, kind of like paper mache in a way, that you put over the fossil so you can move it safely, and they haven't been reopened yet. We hired a paleontologist, Dr. Lindsay Yam. She started in 2020. Uh, for the park service and she's really just getting started on all of the science and things that we're going to be able to do and learn which is super exciting uh, one of the neat things um, that happened um, recently is we were able to get uh, ancient dna uh, from one of the teeth which is really cool and as we do more of that we'll be able to tell things like make sure 
were all of the mammoths in the nursery herd related? Is it one family or is it multiple families? We'll, we'll be able to learn more about them and their story through science and experiments and, and research like that, which is really exciting to get that going. That'd be fascinating to know how many were related, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, and, and are they directly related or are they cousins? You know, it uh, it's neat and it helps us get a better picture of that nursery herd and who, who were they and how long were they here. And, you know, as and as that technology progresses, maybe we can work with the mammoth site in South Dakota and they can do some testing there and be like, we have relatives of our nursery herd all the way up there. Things like that to see just how far reaching this particular nursery herd uh, was. If you look at this map, you can uh-huh. see all of these different mammoth remains. So we're looking at a map of North America and there's dots representing where mammoth remains have been found. And it's a pretty extensive assortment of dots all over sort of North United States, and then all the way down to Central America, Southern Central America, almost to Panama, it seems like. You've even got some down here in Chile as well. And the further south you go, these dots are going to be Colombian mammoths. Up here, you're looking at woolies. You're not going to find Colombians way up here. Uh, And mammoths were somewhat migratory, so they'll be kind of going around based on seasons, based on uh, food availability. But we are the only found Colombian mammoth nursery herd. Um, which is really exciting. But you can see mammoths were everywhere on this continent um, during the Pleistocene epoch or the Ice Age. And tell me the distinction between woolly mammoths and Colombian mammoths. Uh, did they live at the same time, just in different parts of the globe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so think of, think of them like cousins. Um, they're closely related, but they're not exactly related. And uh, Colombian mammoths are like bigger cousins. So uh, pretty similar, just bigger. And then the other thing is, is that woolly mammoths were more woolly, just like their, their name implies. They lived in colder climates, so they would need more of that fur to keep warm. Now, we don't find Colombian mammoths whole like we do woolly mammoths, because uh, you find those woolly mammoths frozen in the permafrost. So they have skin, they have hair, we can see um, what color they were and things like that. We don't find those for Colombian mammoths. So we do know they had less hair, but we don't know how much less hair and what color was it. We know that woolly mammoths had smaller ears, relatively speaking, because it's cold. So would Colombian mammoths have bigger ears? It's likely, but we don't know because the ears don't survive over time. We just have the fossil remains of the skeleton. So we have a little less information about them, but we know enough about them to know that they're kind of like cousins or just big cousin that lives where it's warmer. Now go back to the establishment of this uh, national park site. Yeah. So for many years, um, volunteers and through the Baylor University, they worked and excavated and excavated. And then as they were backfilling or returning dirt to where they had excavated the nursery herd, they stumbled upon the fossils that we see in the dig shelter today. And so they started working on those. And then after a a period of time, the lane was donated. It became a, a city park and it was just a city park. And that's when the good people of Waco really started putting in work to drive 
the campaign to turn this into a national park. And it's really a tribute to them and their hard work and their perseverance uh, to make their local park become a national park, to get that preservation so that for many, many years to come, for future generations, this site will be here and they can come and see a Colombian mammoth nursery herd and they can learn about Colombian mammoths and the Pleistocene epic and all of that fun stuff and earn their junior ranger badge, earn their junior paleo, uh, paleo junior ranger badge. There's just lots of fun things they can do and that will be here in perpetuity now. And so uh, the good people of Waco put in a lot of hard work and a lot of effort and in 2015 uh, the, it was designated to the national park system as a national monument by then President Barack Obama. This is Lynn Riddick speaking with Bryson Turnbull at Waco Mammoth National Monument, and I'll be back after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Interior Federal Credit Union offers a large suite of savings products, including secondary savings accounts for budgeting, individual retirement accounts, health savings accounts, education savings accounts, money marketing accounts, and certificates. Start the new year off with an account at Interior Federal Credit Union and get ready for all the adventures 2023 has to offer. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on the homepage federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. I'm back now with Waco Mammoth lead park ranger, Bryson Turnbull. Very good. Well, let's go take a look at the dig shelter. Let's do. So this is really just from the outside. This is a pretty impressive building. It, it mm -hmm. doesn't seem too large, but it's got a really nice kind of modern design. Can you describe it for us? Yeah, so it's, it's very kind of angular and it was actually designed um, by our, one of our partners at uh, Baylor. Her name is Anita. And it takes in all of the smart building designs from other in-situ sites. And she kind of incorporated everything in. So this side, you can see it's getting sun, but you can see there's those kind of visors there that stick out. So that prevents the sun from ever directly hitting uh -huh. any, of the, any of the fossils. So you get light inside, but you don't get any of the harmful effects of the sun rays hit directly hitting them. You can see how it just drains off all to one side. Um, you can actually dig underneath the foundation. It's designed you can go under. The building can be expanded. If we found more, we wanted to dig more. Um, and there's lots of neat things. When we get inside, you really see as well. 
Ranger Fate. How's it going? Oh, wow. Yeah. So welcome to the dig shelter. I want to point out to you this mural. Uh, and this is an artist's interpretation of Mammoth Q. And so they measured Mammoth Q's bones and then made it to size, to fit, right? So this is how big he would be. That's 13 feet at the shoulders there. Uh, and it gives you an idea of just how big Colombian mammoths were. So as we turn around and we walk up to the edge here of our catwalk and we look down, this is actual Mammoth Q. And as you hear me reference the mammoths, I'll be referring to them by letters. Uh, as they find a mammoth, it gets this letter and it goes in alphabetical order. So mammoth Q, the Q doesn't necessarily stand or mean anything. He was just next in line and happened to be mammoth Q. And so we see the tusks here. Uh, mammoth skulls don't tend to make it because they're, um, if they were solid, they would be too heavy because their, their heads are enormous. So there's lots of kind of think sinus cavities and that type of thing. A lot so, of cartilage. Mm -hmm, and so under the weight of the ground, they crumble. You just don't find mammoth skulls intact too often. But we can follow him down. We can see here's his right front leg, his left leg's over there. You've got ribs, spine. There's his pelvis, back left leg, and back right leg. And so he's mostly articulated. And right, you can really make out how he was probably laying on the ground. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a pose um, that is common, um, we find, in both mammoths and elephants today, in what's considered a natural death pose, meaning he was standing there eating, or maybe he was walking along, and whether it was a heart attack or an aneurysm or whatever it might be, he died and just kind of fell forward. And so that's a natural death pose, rather than being hunted or some, something else happened. He's got kind of this natural death pose, which is great for us because we get this wonderful articulation um, versus some other uh, of, the, of the fossil remains you'll see that are in, they just look like a jumbled mess. Whereas Q here, you can see his shape. You can appreciate just how big he was and you can say, okay, those are the legs and, and see where all his parts are. Something that's interesting for us is on his right rear femur, he's missing the lower part of his leg. And what we find on there um, are teeth marks from a canine. So whether that's a dire wolf or a coyote or whatever type of canine it may have been, they were chewing on him. And we uh, also have those teeth marks on his patella or his kneecap. And he's missing that part. But the rest of him is still there, which means that scavenging took place on him, but not to such an extent that he's pulled all over the place that there's not much of him left. He's mostly there. And so then that is a mystery for us to, to solve. Um, something that I learned when I got here was that in any mammoths, you hardly ever find feet uh, because they're the first thing to go. Mammoths kind of walk on tippy toes with a fat pad in the middle of them. And so they walk like that. Well, that fat pad is a tasty morsel. So it's one of the first <laughs> things to go. And that's kind of part of what helps us know that something happened um, that wasn't usual because in the nursery herd, we've got so many feet bones. We've got so, uh, so many bones that you don't typically find. And so it's the same with, with uh, Q here. And this kind of little pile of bones right there, those are foot bones. For his, for what would be oh, his yeah. right front foot, those are foot bones. So that your uh, carpals, metacarpals, tarsals, metatarsals, um, we have a lot of those, and so that that helps us tell the story. Like something happened to this to this guy or to these 
these different animals because you don't normally find those. They weren't, uh, I'll say, properly scavenged or they weren't um, out into the elements for other animals to eat on them. Uh, that's like with Q, we see a little bit of rodent gnaw marks on his bones, but not a truly scavenged body. Um, and so he was out, but not for an extended period of time or was in a place where the scavengers couldn't necessarily get to him. Um, and so that's part of our mystery. Um, now, I keep, you had asked me uh, whether adult male or female. One thing that we, you can do um, is if you have the pelvis, we see Q's pelvis right there, there's a nice, almost perfect circle in mm -hmm. the middle. And so that tells us that that was a male. So you have size, you have tusk size, but then that circle in the pelvis is a dead giveaway. And when we look at Mammoth W, I'll show you her pelvis, and it's got a diamond shape in it. And that allows for expansion, so birth and babies. Uh, and we know that um, she had given birth at least once. Now, you just took off your jacket, um, and that just made me think about, <laughs> do you try to keep the temperature a certain uh, you know level here in this building? Yeah, so that's a big part of the dig shelter uh, is to protect the fossils within it. And so we keep it, um, it's temperature and humidity controlled. We try to keep it around between 70, 75 degrees as best we can. Uh, it's a real strain on the air conditioners in the summer and when it gets real cold, it's a, it's a strain to, because this is kind of reminds me of a gymnasium with the hole in the floor kind of like a big dirt floor and we're standing on a catwalk and everything's below us so it's like a really tall kind of gymnasium so it's kind of tough to do but we do a pretty good job of it and then of course we have um, humidifiers that uh, maintain the humidity level and as you look throughout the bone bed you're going to see little kind of electronic boxes some of them have little clear plastic over them some of them don't and those are called hobos and those track the humidity level and the temperatures and so we get those once a month and we look at the data to make sure that we're maintaining uh, that proper humidistat control to protect the fossils all right what else can you point out here so if we move a little bit further down here what i want to point to you and as we look out across the um, dig pit, there's kind of two levels. So we have Q at this upper level, and we have Mammoth S and the camel and that lower level. And there's about a 10 to, 10 to 20,000 year difference between them. So uh, Q is 50 to 55,000 years old, and then Mammoth S and camel, which they are the same age as the nursery herd, which would have been out in the gully out there between 60 and 65,000 years old. So if when I go down there and I stand, if I'm standing next to the ridge, it's about here and I'm holding my hand next to my waist here. So probably about two to three feet mm -hmm. represents that 10 to 20,000 year difference. Oh, wow. Um, and so the further down you go or the deeper you dig, the older things are. Now, because we've done, we've got kind of a flat ledged wall over here. And if you look at it about a foot up, you can see there's kind of a dark line. I do see that. And about another foot up, there's another dark line, and it runs the whole length of that wall. And that's called an event line. And an event line tells us something major happened. Something major, so major that it changed the composition of the soil or the sediment, and so it's a different color. So what could do that? You're talking a massive fire, a volcanic eruption, a flood, uh, something uh, essentially catastrophic. So we know that at two points in time, there were major events in this area. And it just so happens that the first event line 
coincides with the nursery herd. And the second event line coincides with uh, mammoth cue in that, era, in that era of animals. Yeah, I see that. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so then we know something major happened at the same time frame that the nursery herd died. And so for a nursery herd to die like that and their bodies to be in the position that they're in, it has to be or is extremely likely to be directly connected to that event. So then that helps us piece together some of our mystery, but at the same time, it adds more questions. You know, what was it? What, what happened to them? You know, how did, how, did it, how did it happen? And it might be that, yes, there was an event, and the events would cover them up, not what killed them, but what covered them up, right? So we have all these questions that we just don't know, and we're trying to get as many clues as we can and piece them together. So Mammoth S, poor Mammoth S has seen better days. All of the bones are in rough shape. And we know that Mammoth S was a juvenile because we see the growth plates in the bones. They hadn't fused or fully formed. We don't know whether it's a male or female because we don't have the pelvis or enough information to, to, to figure it out yet. Uh, we also are going to leave these fossils in situ so we're not gonna dig underneath of them or to, find, to see what else we can get there. But Mammoth S uh, has given us something interesting. And Mammoth S has a vertebrae that is not properly formed. And uh, we look at the pathology of that bone and we see that it is not properly formed, which is um, typically a sign of malnutrition. So when we look at that um, vertebrae, it shows us that she uh, was suffering from malnutrition. So what do mammoths eat? One of those giant hay bales feeds two mammoths for one day. That's a lot of grass. But grass is generally pretty abundant, was definitely abundant in this uh, area in most of Texas at that time. So what is going to cause a mammoth to starve? Well, what's going to prevent grass from growing? Drought. And so we think that it was likely a drought, and that's why we see um, the pathologies or the stories that the bones tell us about that particular mammoth's life. So what else can that tell us? Well, if there's been a drought or a sustained drought, that means that a flash flood is much more likely and could be much more devastating. Uh, so that points towards the idea of uh, the mammoths dying in a flood, which was the original um, hypothesis. We are not 100% on that one anymore. Uh, if, let's say, they're having trouble finding water, there's not enough to eat, and they go and they find a place where there is water, and what if there is a bloom, a toxic algae bloom, where the water's bad? They all drink that bad water, they die right there. Uh, or maybe they have to go down into somewhere that they don't usually go, they get down there, they get some water, and then, oh, they can't get out, and they're stuck, and then it's a, kind of a, a, a slow death. Um, we just don't know that yet, but again, it's finding these clues and piecing them together, and they kind of start to point us towards what had happened or what may have happened. And we can use information from other sites, information from other examples. We can see how modern elephants behave today. And we kind of use all that information to, to paint a picture of what we think happened. This is Lynn Riddick speaking with Bryson Turnbull at Waco Mammoth National Monument. And I'll be back after this short break. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. 
They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. I'm back now with Waco Mammoth lead park ranger, Bryson Turnbull. Now, Camel uh, is interesting because where the tail should be is where the neck and head parts were and vice I, versa. I can, tell, I can make out the spine. Yeah, you can see the spine. So something happened to Camel. Uh, and this must be a foot there. I see the two uh-huh. uh, appendages that yep. look like toes. That's right. And we had to move the skull. The skull used to be over here, but we, there was once, one time, water came in. And that's where you get this kind of trough that you see dug in the floor there. If it were to happen again, it directs it away. But we had to jacket it and move it. Uh, but we have the whole skull there. You can kind of see the round where the eye would be. And uh, again, we get to look at camel's teeth. I love teeth because they tell us so much about animals, the size of the animal, what they were eating, how old they were. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that camels evolved here in North America. And they traveled over Beringia or the Bering Land Bridge. And they get, that's how they get into um, Asia and the uh, Middle East, and they evolve into the modern-day humpback camel over there. Um, they go south, and they evolve into llamas and alpacas and such. Um, something that we actually just found, which is really exciting, and we did a we just did a project last month with it. Uh, we found uh, fossil remains of alligator snapping turtles, and that's important because alligator snapping turtles only live where there is always water. So that creek dries up does that today would have done it back then but on the other side of uh, the embankment there there was always water and we know that because we found those um, those fossil fragments so we see giant tortoise fragments that we have uh, that we found right here but they don't they don't tell us there was always water here but the alligator snapping turtle does. And so the types of animals that we have help us learn about the environment as well and what it was like. You know, one thing I wanted to point out is that the lighting is amazing in this dig site. Mm -hmm. um, it's really well lit um, and it allows the definition of the bone fragments to really, really be seen. Mm -hmm. um, especially the tusk of Mammoth Q. That is just amazing. And part of that is, you know, because they're not fully mineralized. They don't have that, they're not rocks, they're still bones, right? Uh, so they are fossils, but they're not fully fossilized. And so we get kind of a different look and it really looks like you're looking at a skeleton rather than rocks shaped like a skeleton. One of the really neat things, uh, you heard me mention teeth earlier is W has the best teeth. Mammoths only have four teeth. 
You can see the lower jaw right there. So both of those teeth were on her lower jaw. Mm -hmm. And then you can see her, the upper oh, jaw Oh, I do right see there. that now, yep, you yes. You see both of those yeah. teeth. So you can see her teeth, you can get full access to them, and they are uh, in great shape. And mammoths So the are, teeth are about, uh, I mean, they, they look like they're probably about the uh, size of a size six tennis shoe. Yeah, um, a full-grown male mammoth on his um, fifth or sixth set of teeth, they can be a size of size 12 men's shoe boxes. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so they can get pretty big. Um, and they'll have uh, between five and six sets of teeth in their life, depending on how long they live. And they have so many teeth because they're grinding grass all day, all day long. These fossils are uh, halfway or three quarters of the way unearthed. So does digging continue here um, currently, or do you sort of want to leave these alone now? So it is considered an active dig site. And, you know, if we look at the building as a whole, that's probably 40% open, I would say. So then the rest of it hasn't been dug yet and could be dug. And eventually, over time, it will be. We don't want to move these fossils around too much or anything. They're in situ, and we've got to be able to leave them to rest so we won't go under or we won't do too much with them. But we will um, do some more digging over time. Over here, we have some bones uh, from an Artiodactyla or a member of the uh, even-toed animals. And so we'd like to see, well, what animal is that? Is there more of it there? The saber-toothed cat tooth that we found was by that. Maybe there's saber-toothed cat over there. So the, it's considered an active dig site. We won't really do too much to the bones that you see. Um, we do some cleaning up and maybe some edging around them to help them look more pronounced. But we won't dig those anymore. But this area, these areas, over time we will. So we're looking at an area um, to our right that's probably, I don't know, 40 feet, maybe 50 feet mm -hmm. by 25, 30 feet. Mm -hmm. And that's underneath the, the roof of the building yep, inside and of the un, undug at this point. Mm -hmm. And so eventually we will do some digging. At the same time, it is a finite resource, uh, meaning that what's in here is all that we have. And hopefully we can be here for three or 400 more years. And we don't want to dig all of that up because we we need to keep it in, in perpetuity for, for all the future generations of Americans. And so um, we'll do some digging, but not as much. But what we will do more work on is out in the ravine, uh, working with the Turtle Bluff and seeing what we can find out there. So um, land that was within our, our, our boundaries, uh, but not within the dig shelter. Uh, so active dig sites. we'll do some digging. Um, whether or not we'll ever get to the point where this entire building here is fully dug out. Um, that'll be a long time down the road, uh, but that way we can make sure that it lasts. So when you say we're doing the digging, who who is doing the digging? So and because I noticed a whole stack of knee pads, there, yeah, some whisk brooms, and um, so and how often do they come? So Dr. Dr. Yan is our park paleontologist, and she does most of the digging. Um, we had our crew that was here, part of Turtle Bluff, and it was rainy and cold a couple days, and so they came in. And they did what's called conservation work. Is that a volunteer? Uh, no, so that was um, that was a project that was done through um, National Park Foundation uh, grant that we were able to get uh, to preserve resource. 
And so they were working out there, and then they, in, they were in here doing conservation work. We had two SIP, scientists and park interns, over the summer. They helped us uh, put a label on every single one of these bones to bring it into the um, Park Service collection. Uh, and so our bones get dusty in here. They need cleaned <laughs> up. Uh, some of them uh, are in tough shape, and they kind of need some uh, protective coat of glue on them to, to hold them together. Uh, there is... Um, a lot of that work that got done. So when you're looking at them, they're looking really good. They've they they kind of just got a bath, so to speak, okay. and they're looking really good. And so that's where all these knee pads come from. And you missed it. Uh, just last month, there'd have been you know four or five students around Camel, and you know three or four students around S, and seven or eight of them around uh, W up there, and just they got a little bitty uh, Q-tip, dip it in the acetone, and you just go over and, and clean it all up and. Um, sometimes conservation work is a little bit more uh, extensive. When we cross back across the catwalk here and we look at W, we've got this rib that's over here. I see that. And kind of the bigger tip at the end there was free floating. Uh, and so what they did was they took sediment that we got from screen washing. So it would just be dirt but from the original site and they combined it with plaster so that dirt makes it the right color of the plastic. Plaster holds it to form, and we formed underneath of it, so it's supported. So we didn't change the fossil in any way. We just made it safer so that we don't have bone just kind of hanging over the edge. I see. But that's where it was found. Yeah, that's exactly where it was. We just wanted to put some more support underneath of it so we didn't have to worry about it falling apart. So that's conservation work. So that work is pretty much always going. Um, and when we have uh, we have the help here to help us, um, that's like we're going to be getting um, two more scientists and park interns this summer. And that'll be a lot of what they're doing. And hopefully conservation work will be mostly done. And that, then that'll be something that gets done every couple of years. Over here is, uh, we call it the, the platform. You can call it the bone deck, the bone prepare platform. And this is where we open jackets. and. Uh, you know, jackets are how we safely move the fossils around. They're kind of that paper mache. And you basically cut a lid off the top, and then you dig down. And then after a certain point, then you peel it off, and you get all the way through it. And so you can see there's kind of a bigger bone that's being dug right there. And it takes a lot of time. It's slow going. And we've got bunches of these jackets. And we've got small jackets. That's a small jacket. Of course, it's about the size of a, of a pretty big watermelon, and we call that a small jacket. Um, and they get even bigger because you think if you were to jacket all of Mammoth Jay's head there with the skull and the tusks, it's going to be pretty big. And heavy. That's where this crane that you see comes into play. Oh, look at that. And they built this crane into the dig shelter so along with that big rolling door. So it's a beam going across the top of the wall. In the center of the, of the ceiling. And so that way, if we had to jacket something, we could get it out of here safely. And again, that's just that um, all the great thought that went into designing this building. Uh, so we open our jackets up over here, and we do uh, preparation on this deck. We are in the process of getting this extended all the way to the wall, which will give us a lot more space uh, so we can be opening multiple jackets. And, and as we look forward to hopefully, uh, you know, hiring hiring some more park staff, um, they'll have place, they'll have room to work and to can really kind of get opening those jackets so we can get into the nursery herd collection to really see what we've got. So just want to make sure I understand what I'm mm -hmm. seeing here. Mm -hmm. So you have like a cast over top of a bone fragment. 
and that's what I'm looking at now. There's a bone fragment inside that very large water, watermelon half. Mm-hmm. Um, is that accurate? Is there in kind of? So think about it like if you hold your fist, up, your arm up in your fist, and you have your fist is the actual fossil, and then your wrist and your arm is a dirt column that it's resting on. And so you would take um, typically burlap and and you would lay it over it. Um, You can use a plastic bag if that's all you got. Um, And then you use plaster and you basically make the helmet over your fist. And so then what you can do is you can flip your fist over, separating it from the dirt column, and then jacket the rest of it. And that holds it all together. The sediment or the dirt that it's in, it holds that all together. And it makes a really nice little package that's not jostling around or anything like that. And then it's kind of like opening a cast. You kind of just cut around the edge and then you pop the lid off and then you dig your way through it with your little brush and your toothbrush and your and your uh, toothpicks and such and, and you basically finish excavating the particular item. And then, of course, once we get in there, you know, you might see a rib that's in, you know, 50 different pieces. Well, we'll put it back together. And that's kind of what the sandbox here in the middle is for. So you can glue things together and you'll sometimes I'll come in and there'll be ribs sticking out of the sand as they're glued together and they're drying. And then we put them together over here and they end up going back to the Mayborn where they go in these really cool kind of big rack boxes or they're stored safely because we don't have that storage space here. They can be properly kept with, remember, the temperature and humidity and everything. And that's one of the wonderful things about our partnership is they have those facilities. Uh, And so we can kind of work together to store them and and conduct the science on the fossils that we have. Yeah, let's step back outside now and take a look at the view. Hey, Casey, how's it going? Thank Uh. you. So, Bryson, I wanted to ask you uh, what it was that brought you here. Have you always been a fossil buff? <laughs> well, I actually started my Park Service career out um, back in Springfield, Illinois, where I'm from, at the Lincoln Home National Historic Site. I've been there. Yes. That's my home park. You know, that's where I was from. And I always tell folks it, it wasn't until the tender age of 30 that I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was actually, um, I took that Wild West road trip we're all supposed to take, and uh, I was standing in Zion National Park. And it just spoke to me. I said, Dad, dummy, why don't you be a park ranger? You're perfect for it. So I went home, uh, went back to school. I got a bachelor's in recreation management. I started volunteering at the Lincoln Home. I was able to get a Pathways internship, and then I was Pathways into a park guide position. And I was there for a total of about seven years. And then there uh, was a promotional opportunity for lead park ranger down here working for... um, a ranger that I had worked for before, and, and she's great. So I was like, well, I, 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 could, I could move to Texas for that. And so I talked to my wife, and she says, yeah. And so I applied and, and interviewed, and I was fortunate enough to be selected for the position. And so we came down to Waco, and we got to Texas about three or four days before the big freeze in 21. <laughs> um, of course, being from Illinois, we, we were ready for it, but uh, I don't know. None of us were. Yeah. And so... We came here down here into that, and that was crazy. But the neat thing about being an interpreter is that I just need the knowledge of the resource, and then I can talk about it. So whether it's big old bones or a president's house or whatever it might be, whatever story we're telling from our nation's history, uh, I can tell it. You know, that's that's my my job. That's where my skills come in. And so 
I can't say when I wanted to become a park ranger, I'm like, I want to work at one of those paleo sites. Uh, I was just any site where I get to wear this sweet hat makes me happy. Uh, but like so many kids, when you're growing up, dinosaurs and ice age and these big fossils and big bones and big animals is just, just fascinating. And so, uh, it's definitely rekindled that aspect. I was definitely one of those kids and, um, you know, sometimes it's a struggle when I'm working with, with younger, uh, younger aged groups so that they know that dinosaurs, 65 million years ago, <laughs> mammoths, 65,000 years ago, uh, bridging that gap can be difficult at times, but um, it still elicits the same sense of wonder. And uh, I like the idea of a mystery and, and trying to, you know, use our brains and science to figure out what happened and solving that mystery. Uh, and so I really enjoy it. Uh, and I'm also very thankful that Dr. Yan is gracious enough to be very patient with me <laughs> as I ask my questions and I learn. Um, and, you know, uh, occasionally I get things wrong and she um, very nicely corrects me and, and helps me with that. And uh, I've just learned so much. And you know, until my time here is done, I'll continue to learn because uh, there's a lot to learn just about the Ice Age itself, these particular animals, and then the whole um, paleontological process and all of that. Uh, so I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and like I said, the skills that I need to tell people about it, I've got those. So it's, I, get a, <laughs> I get a focus on learning about them and, and, and what Texas was like at that time and, and what life was like for not just these giant mammoths, but all the other animals that are functioning in the environment around them as well. Well, Bryson, thank you for your time today. It's been really fun learning about the mammoths you oh. know, and the history here and roaming around on the same pieces of land that those huge animals did. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm so glad you could come here today and hopefully uh, your listeners will be intrigued and, and come check our site out. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be discussing calls for migratory corridors to be created between national parks to benefit flora and fauna species that need to escape biological islands. It's an interesting proposal, but can such corridors actually be created? For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.